So we're ready to start the next set now. Right on time. Everyone excited? Let's have some enthusiasm. Come on, whoop it up. That's better. Okay, so we've got Stefan Alcock next on the stage. Uh, and he is a great writer. They're all great writers, of course, so we wouldn't have put them on the stage. He's a writer, editor, and translator. A born and raised Yorkshireman, his debut novel, Blood Relatives, has received widespread critical acclaim. The Guardian described it as refreshing, even radical. The Times said it is written with a daring and assurance. Blood Relatives was long-listed for the 2015 Green Carnation Prize and is currently shortlisted for the Polari First Book Prize. So let's welcome to the stage, Stefan Alcock. Thank you, Zelda, and good evening, everybody. Um, I'm keeping my flat cap on because it's, uh, I'm a Yorkshireman. Um, Blood Relatives is, um, well, if it was an elevator pitch, I would describe it as a gay coming-of-age novel set against the background of the Yorkshire Ripper murders. And um, I hope um, most people know, but occasionally somebody doesn't, that the Yorkshire Ripper murders were 1975 to 1981. And I suppose it's much more than that, because it's really, um, as well as being centred around a story of a family told by young Rick, who's 14 when the book opens and 21 when the book finishes, and his mother Pam and his stepfather Mitch, who's also a lorry driver, and his younger sister Mandy. Um, Rick, who's, I said, 14 when the book opens, and it's the opening section of the novel that I'm going to read to you, and he works for something called Corona Soft Drinks. Does anybody remember Corona? Yeah. Ah, and Alpine and all the other ones. So he delivers around Chapeltown in Leeds in Yorkshire every weekend, um, delivering pop and, and other things. Apparently I need to be, a, oh yes, I can hear that now. You'd think I'd know that. I used to be at a band years ago. Um, right, so we're going to open with the, the first murder, um, which is Wilma McCann. But it's not about the murders. It's about the society that the murders created and what the fallout of that was and how it affects this family. Um, Wilma McCann. 30th of October, 1975. The milkman found her on Prince Philip playing fields. He crossed the dew-soaked grass toward what he took to be a bundle of clothes, and then he came across a discarded shoe and then mutilated body. Her name were Wilma McCann. An hour earlier, with daybreak a mere streak across Leeds skyline, Wilma McCann's two kids were found by police waiting at the in their night clothes at a bus stop in Scottall Road, hoping to see their mother on the next bus from town. Later on morning, the milkman made his gruesome discovery after he told police, made a statement, phoned his missus from a box on Hare Hills Lane, the milk float were working almost parallel with our Corona soft drinks wagon up and down Hare Hill's red brick back-to-backs. It weren't usual for him to be in this street at the same time as us. 
who were running way late. Eric, me driver, parked the horn. The milk float driver beckoned us over, his face taut and joyless. Stay here, Rick. Watch Van. Summit's up. This irked me. My mind were already racing ahead to the end of working day, to the terraced house at the end of the cul-de-sac, where Matterhorn man lived. And now Eric were blathering on with milkman, and the day was stretching its sen out before me. I plonked both feet sulkily on dashboard and mulled on washing lines slung between backs at terraces. Billowing sheets, flapping underwear and windsock nylon shirts. Washing slowed us down even more than some cow's corpse. I'd have to march before a wagon with a long pole and hoist up our washing so our grimy vehicle could sneak beneath. The women would hear van and look out skittishly as we passed, watching to make sure that their pristine laundry won't soil don't line. Then we'd stop. Stacking half a dozen bottles up each forearm, we'd move deftly from back kitchen doorstep to back kitchen door. From Asian kitchens where hands of women were stained with turmeric, to kitchens of black women who laughed and joked with us in their patois, to Ukrainian and Polish kitchens, and English kitchens. Kitchens filled with smells of spices and baking, dank kitchens of stomach-churning grease, dirt and indifference. Over at road, the milkman and Eric were still confabbing. The milkman were pointing somewhere. I swore, slammed my fist hard against the cab door, clambered out and back at wagon and noisily dragged some crates about. It was a frigid age before I heard the whine of milk float pulling away, and I saw Eric bustling over, face like a pig's arse. He sat in cab, clutching the steering wheel with both hands and staring flatly ahead. So? So he found a body this morning. What? A dead one? Uh-huh. Thinks she were done over last night. Eric picked at his teeth with his forefinger, leaned over at round book. Number 43 wants a crate of cream soda. Because of all palaver over body, it was late morn before I found me sent propping up the doorframe of Mrs. Husk's living room, bottle of ginger beer dangling between me fingers. Mrs. Husk was slower than any corpse and only a smidgen an hour from becoming one. She'd grind time to a halt if she got her way. I should have been in and out of here an age back. Ugh! spluttered Mrs. Usk. Me leg. I looked on as she doubled over in her chair, rubbing her calf, picking uselessly at the fraying edges of her bandaging. Her heavy brown wig had slipped slightly to show wisps of white hair floating and anchored like sheep's wool traces caught on barbed wire. Uff, she repeated, eyeing me beadily. Don't get no better. Nor would it. I prayed the old cuckoo wouldn't ask me to rewrap it. Not again. Not today of all days. I weren't a friggin' nurse for Christ's sakes. I were here to deliver pop. Her leg was so ulcerated and pitted it were like massaging cold chicken skin. And not even industrial depot soap could get rid of my get rid of my hands at stink of her ointment. The day was stacked against me. The milkman had found a body. Mrs. Usk wanted her leg seeing to, and I would be late for Matterhorn Man. 
Mrs. Husk motioned me further in, her jaw slackening and closing wordlessly like a ruminant chewing cud. Better stay over here, Mrs. Husk. I stood in some doggy do earlier on, which were a lie. Of course, I'd wanted to clap eyes on corpse. Couldn't be any worse than cat I'd found in a water barrel with a ligature round its neck. Just a quick gander at death, then I'd go and sell pop. People die, people are born, and people buy pop. Mrs. Usk were levering her sen out of her chair with both arms. Oof. My nostrils flared, catching the manky whiff of her room. Such a dingy room, the floral wallpaper a discoloured shade of piss, the moth-eaten rugs scarcely hiding the bare floorboards. Two mangy armchairs were angled toward a gas fire that hissed bleakly from fireplace, the stuffing oozing out of one of them. She slept in here, the old bird, slept in one of them there armchairs. She took the new bottle of ginger beer from me and shuffled off into the kitchen. That's it, under sink. Go on, that's where you keep it, behind that grubby gingham cloth. Mrs. Husk were faithful to her one bottle of ginger beer. Still, I thought, scratching me knackers through a hole in my pocket, she's not a bad old crow. Not one of them cringing, whinging old crones on round who peer at you through the crack of their door chains or clack, 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 clack their dentures at you about young folk or darkies or war. The old littered the round, holed up in their stinking flats and decrepit houses, of, smelling of stale piss and imminent death. She might wear a hairnet and have a whiffy leg, but there was somewhat brusque about Mrs. Husk. She never apologised for being old. She edged away over to the table by the window and sat down empty. Bugger the doggy do, come in proper while I get your money. Her dappled old hands quivered as she reached for a buff envelope from behind mantel clock. The clock had an assured tock-tock and an expensive chime, an heirloom perhaps. Even most adult old girl would notice if that went walkies and Mrs Husk's mind were lemon sharp. That clock were probably the only thing of value she had. Then again, maybe she was secretly loaded. The elderly accumulate. They hoard, they store, they stash. Summer brushed against me foot. Lord Snooty, her unfeasibly fat tomcat, was lurking under the table, blinking up at me like it knew what I was thinking. I said, I can't stay long, we're running late. I thought maybe you weren't coming, that you'd miss me out again. Would I do that, Mrs Usk? She tucked an errant lock of hair beneath her net, looked at me askance. I twitched to be gone as she painfully counted out money for ginger beer. She always got it wrong. Her hands hovered shakily over coins. She wore a gold wedding ring and another ring from the same finger set with some fat, dark stone. The rings seemed welded into her bony fingers. Anyone wanting to remove them would have to hack them off. They found a body this morning, I said. Mrs. Husk ceased moving coins around. She examined the pile of coppers, tanners and bobs as if she were reading tea leaves. A body? My, my. It's a rum world, ain't it, lad? One by one, she placed the coins in my hand. Is that right, then? She were fought short. Aye, that's it. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Stefan. Uh, so next up, and ready to take the stage, we have Irena Senekodier. Uh, she's a great writer. She's been to the book jam before. We love having her, so we asked her to come back. Uh, she's been named by writer Ben Okri as an exciting talent to watch. I'm watching where we have been since 2012, 2013, and I've just on an upward trajectory. It's very exciting. In 2016, she's published her short story collection, Speak Gigantula, and won a Betty Trask Award for her novel, Butterfly Fish. Her writing's been published in literary journal, Kwani, magazine, Fatitudes, and newspapers, The Guardian and The Observer. You can find out more about her at irenasenakodje.com. Welcome to the stage, Irenasen. Fine. Yeah, that's perfect. Good evening, everyone. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for that wonderful um, introduction, Zelda. And thank you guys for coming out. You could be indoors at home doing something else, but you came out to support writers, and we very much appreciate that. So I'm going to read from my debut novel, Butterfly Fish, which came out last year. And it's a dark tale about three generations of a family and their connection to an ancient Benin brass artifact. Um, and the story kind of takes place in modern London, 50s Nigeria, as well as 19th century Benin. So I'm gonna read from a section in the Benin Kingdom. And here, the king is holding a ceremony to find his latest bride, and the kingdom is buzzing in preparation. So here we go. Blessings sometimes traveled in pairs. And when they did, especially during a rainy season, there was a unanimous decision by the gods to give way to them through the traffic of the living. They floated above the still moist beds of earth where cassava plants slept, bounced off the hard backs of restless tortoises in humid, unforgiving nights, joined the march of ants under remnants of partially eaten sweet wild berries and clung to the tiny wings of fireflies that appeared as small bursts of light in the belly of night's air. When they finally deposited themselves on Odessa's head on the morning of the ceremony at the palace, the only indication that they had arrived was an itch to the right side of her brow. This itch did not stop after the necessary scratch, no. Instead, it spread like fire all over her head, and the only thing that called its ardor was the kiss of cold water. The blessings laughed because their seeds had been sown. They knew that later in the day, when the family set out for the palace, the skies overhead would part and shed tears upon them all. It did not stop Odeswa from sweating while she labored over the pot of amebe soup she had prepared under Mama's supervision. Nor did it stop Papa from killing their biggest goats that he had said had tried to run when it saw the glint from the newly sharpened blade. It did not stop Odeswa from having her thick hair plied into submission by nimble hands, her body oiled till it gleamed, and the wrapper material she purchased from the market tied and fitted so perfectly around her tall frame, it would have convinced anybody the material was made with only her figure in mind. All over their village, a variation of this occurred. Households in small and large compounds were busy preparing their suitable daughters as though the king had made a personal visit to request for their daughter's hand. 
Prayers were said, offerings made. It seemed there was nothing people wouldn't do to beat the competition. But nobody except Mama Adabra knew what the neighboring villages were up to. There were whispers in the village that she had traveled as far as Shekhani to visit a medicine man who claimed he could insert himself into scenes of the future, then come back to tell you about it. These whispers were soon slapped away by the hands of excitement and expectation. For days before, the soil was fruitful, yielding cocoa yam and plump melons that changed the color of your tongue momentarily. Blades of grass shot out from hungry, dry patches. Plants reached up high off the ground, as if attempting to have conversations with the heavens. Purple and yellow petals scattered around like their hopes and dreams clinging to a foundation of dust. Even the air seemed filled with expectation. It touched the villages, or maybe they touched it, and it sighed in appreciation and carried them along in this period of madness and desire. Adeswa had asked about this king many times, but each person gave a different answer each time, and she was convinced very few of the villagers had actually seen him. I heard he fed one of his wives to hyenas for disobeying him, old man Anonkwe had said, wise man. You know he changes into an animal at night, Amasi offered another time. The king has dealings with pale men from lands far, far away. Obriame, one of the village elders, had told her conspiratorially. Of all three, Adeswa was convinced Obriame was the biggest liar. Imagine such a thing, pale men. And so it went on and on. Adeswa became tired of all the talk and wonder at this king who did not even deign to visit his people and who seemed to have too many wives already by all accounts. Adeswa could not wait for the day and the ceremony to be over so the village could stop humming with gossip. She could go back to swinging and playing from trees and not worry about the cuts on her skin or papa's disapproving eyes. She could race some of the young men in the village near the riverbank and when she won, joined them on their jaunt to a hidden clearing where they said human bones lay in wait. She dreamed of following Papa on one of his hunting trips, watching from a secret place while he stalked and captured his prey. By early afternoon, many of the villagers had started out for the palace ceremony. The beautiful young women in their colorful prints and intricately plaited hair were led enthusiastically by their mothers each desperate to outdo the other, while the fathers loitered behind them slightly, chewing on sugarcane while they speculated on the day's events to come. On they went, past riverbanks with edges like disfigured faces licked by keen waters, through long, dusty paths that coughed up red dirt as determined feet trampled along their winded chests, past the gaze of tall trees whose branches shook slightly in greeting. They paused for food and rest on the outskirts of the town of Ego. They marveled at the hospitality of some of the town folk, who, although welcoming them with curiosity, still offered cooked ripe bananas and palm wine. It was here that the villagers met a man called Igwehi. His hair was completely white, and he walked with a stooped back and propped himself up on a stick. Igwehi said that he had worked as a craftsman producing leather for the previous king. Oba Onoje, the father of the current king. He had witnessed many royal ceremonies and even been favored by the king. He relayed that Oba Onoje ruled with a strong fist 
and on discovering a coup to overthrow him by one of his closest advisers in the royal court, had ordered his rival's head to be chopped off using a ritual sword. For 10 days, the advisor's head had been left for all to see on a specially made clay mantle within the palace walls. And even when high-ranking members in the palace had pleaded with Oba Onoje to have the head removed, he refused. He let it sit on the mantle till the blood dried into all the creases and crevices in the clay created by the baking sun, and the stench turned the stomachs of nervous courtiers. Iguerhi told this tale with relish, chewing over the words like the flesh of a tenderly cooked cow, and rubbing his left thigh with one hand while gently banging his stick on the ground with the other. Then he accidentally revealed that he, having lost favour with the king, had also been thrown out of the royal courts. The revelation slipped from his mouth the way a breast spills out from a loosely tied wrapper. He attempted to contain it by covering his mouth, as if it had not been meant for the ears of strangers. When Odessa asked him why the king had banished him, his eyes began to roll in their sockets, as though running to take cover in the far corners of his mind. Benin was a city that had flourished over time under the rule of the different Obas, and for the most part, it sat in quiet, satisfied contentment. You could see it in the number of undamaged gates, where throughout, many of them reaching eight or nine feet in height, with doors made from single pieces of ancient wood hinged on pegs, behind which smart and sometimes opulent homes had been built. You could see it in the Queen's Court, which stretched for over six miles and was protected by a wall 10 feet tall, fashioned from enormous trees and tied to one another by crossbeams and infilled with red clay. Even along the streets, the houses sat in neat rows. The palace of Benin was divided into several quarters, apartments for courtiers and houses in sprawling, endless, dust-shrouded grounds, beautiful square galleries kissed by the breath of gods rested on wooden pillars covered in the finest cast copper. In the afternoon, the sun shone on the ornate copper engravings depicting war exploits, images of soldiers rushing into battle, wielding finely crafted spears and carrying sun rays in their mouths. Each roof had a small turret with copper-casted birds harboring the sounds of battle, waiting to carry them into angles of light swirling in the blue sky. Thank you very much, guys, for listening. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, Renison. That was great. Uh, so the next writer that we have up uh, is David Kessler. He's a thriller writer and also writes in other genres, published by Hodder, HarperCollins, and more recently for the Kindle. His most recent books, written under the pen name Adam Palmer, are conspiracy thrillers, linking history with modern events. He also writes legal thrillers under his own name. His most recent book, Cold Turkey, written under the pen name Dave, is about a pair of drug addicts who kidnap a right-wing shock jock and get him addicted to heroin in revenge for disparaging comments he made about drug addictions on his radio program. So, without further ado, may I invite David Kessler to the stage. Hi, uh, thank you. 
Uh, I'm actually not going to read from uh, that book, Cold Turkey. I'm going to read from one of my thrillers, a book called, uh, a book called Tarnished Heroes. Uh, it's a thriller that I wrote in the 90s based very loosely on the Wimbledon Common murder. Uh, it is slightly dated in certain respects. Uh, for example, it refers to a pub that is no longer there, or a pub that has now been turned into a health centre, of all things. So I hope you'll forgive these uh, anachronisms. Rose Crown was aware of the man's eyes upon her. She didn't need to pull the old stunt of t taking out a powder compact and looking in the mirror. She felt the danger in the proverbial tingling at the back of the neck. It might be a cliché, she thought, but it's real. She had felt the claw of his stare gripping the back of her neck even before she stepped out into the slightly chilly night air from Jack Straw's castle, a pub on the border of Hampstead Heath. She had been sure that he would follow her from the moment she had caught his eye in the mirror beside the bar. It was one of those old-fashioned advertising mirrors with the name of a long-established brewery emblazoned across it. A few minutes earlier, she had paused in front of it to check out her appearance and had noticed him staring at her. He was just above average height and his build seemed fuller than when he had last been in the news. His face was also rounder, but not to the extent that she could have failed to recognize him. It was only about five years since the whole thing had started, and he must be about 33 now. He had the same stooping posture when he walked, though it escaped attention as long as he stood still. His trousers were beige and his shirt white, like a flag of surrender. Not that surrender was a word that she associated with a man like him. She had studiously avoided eye contact with him after that single moment with the mirror, turning her back on him and looking down as she finished her drink, a lemon bitter shandy. The pub had an old-fashioned feeling about it, an ambience created by the dark brown wood of the furniture. There was an awkward kind of almost matching quality about the different shades and grains of wood, marked by variation between the tables, chairs and floorboards. The pub was large, but reduced to warm, cozy sections by pillars, beams, and partitions of the same dark wood that slashed their way across it. It was a place where people could enjoy a sense of being out of their homes and yet still be sheltered from others. A place where privacy shook hands with freedom. But it was hard to admire the decor when she was so alert to the danger posed by the man who had been watching her. From his reactions, if nothing else, she knew that she had set in motion a chain of events over which she had, at best, very limited control. As she stepped out of the pub into the darkness, she saw across the road the great stone monument rising up majestically, dedicated to the men and women of Hampstead who gave their lives for their country in two great wars. She had intended to turn right and walk towards Hampstead Station. That was nearer than Golders Green. But there might be fewer people around when she got there. 
If she turned left, on the other hand, she could go to Golders Green with its bus terminal and brightly lit late-night bakery, where all the Jewish teenagers hung out every night except Friday, when the Jewish Sabbath commenced at sunset. But she would have had to walk through a dark, lonely stretch of road to get there. In an instant of sudden awakening to the situation, she became aware of the fact that she was out of her depth, though it was hard to say what had brought this awareness upon her. The silence seemed like the obvious candidate for blame, but it couldn't have been the silence alone, for it was far from complete. It was permeated by the occasional rumble of a car engine in the background. It was the absence of other people, she realized. She had expected people to be spilling out of the pubs after closing time, but tonight was a Monday when people went home exhausted from the first day of work after the fun and games of the weekend. Monday was a quiet day for places of entertainment, and Rose Crown realized now that the scarcity of people in the pub, it, in the pub itself wasn't just an odd coincidence. But if she was to conquer her demons from the past, she would have to go this way, not in spite of, but because of the danger. The prospect of turning right and walking past the Pomp to Hampstead tube station offered itself to her as a tempting proposition, but it also seemed to mock her. It was as if it was telling her that she lacked the courage of the men and women whose memorial stood there opposite in critical contempt of her for the dilemma over which she was now agonizing. Then her fear gave way to ire. I'm not a frightened little girl, she told herself. I'm a grown woman. I don't have to fear the darkness, or a man who's probably more frightened of me than I am of him. The decision was made neither by reason nor by fear. It was made by anger. She turned sharply, determined to go through with it, gripping the CS spray canister in her handbag as she started the long trek. She carried herself forward with brisk strides. The anger had drowned out the fear, like a wave sweeping over a rock. But when the wave passed, the rock was still there. Likewise, the fear. She continued hurriedly on her way. Martin Roebuck felt a pang of excitement when he saw the woman. It was so unexpected and welcome. The glance in the mirror, the smile that slipped away to be replaced by a frown when she caught his reflection. She was in her mid-twenties, and she was afraid he could see that. She was not his perfect type, but certainly a good approximation. She was blonde and the eyes were blue. The cheekbones were not as high as he would have liked, but the hips were wide. Her arms and shoulders, in contrast, were thin. Most significantly, she did not look strong. She was wearing a short skirt, displaying bare thighs that were ample, but not over-ample, at least not to Roebuck's taste. The open display of flesh and the flimsiness of the white fabric gave her a look of vulnerability, but he sensed that this was deliberate, in a manner of speaking. Monday was not the most likely night for going on the pull. Yet here she was, all tarted up, like she was putting herself in a showcase, if not on the market. Prostitute was the first word that came to mind when he caught sight of her in the pub. Not slag or slapper, but prostitute. It was so unexpected, so frightening, 
and so thrilling. He had thought that he would never again get a chance like this, yet here it was presenting itself to him, if it was a chance. Past experience had taught him to be suspicious. But when he saw her walking towards the door, he decided to follow her. Thank you. And on that cliffhanger, the shame is he hasn't brought that book to sell, so you're going to have to ask him what happens next. But he has got some other ones. What happens next? So, next, last person in this set, may I welcome Tom Tomaszewski, uh, who grew up in South London and works as a psychotherapist specializing in addiction. His father came from a family of dissenting Polish patriots. His aunt died in Auschwitz, and his grandfather was regularly prosecuted for writing an anti-Prussian column, Polish Fire. I know we've got some Polish people in the audience, so they'll be listening to every word. The 11th letter is a story about desire, ghosts, and trying to change the past. Tom, may I welcome you to the stage? Hello. Thanks for coming out and supporting us all. It's lovely. Um, I'm going to read from the beginning of the 11th letter, which is my novel that's coming out um, the end of the month. So this is set in Pisa, uh, 1986. After a few moments, I heard myself speaking. My name's Christopher Cativa. I sounded so much younger. That was August, 1986. I was listening to a tape recording from nearly 25 years ago in my study, cut off from the world by snow. Louise replied, Dr. Kativa, I wondered how you pronounced it. Chris. And I remembered how she looked sitting opposite me in that strange, shadowy, cluttered room at the police building in Pisa. I remembered her blue eyes, then her heart-shaped face, and her dark hair, her arms folded in her lap, and her legs, which were crossed, and her black shoes with their sharp heels. She sat opposite me on the verge of a smile, a few strands of her hair across her face. I noticed the smell of her perfume, which was something musky and European, not at all English, and the way her skirt folded over her knee. I remember the suit she was wearing, probably Chanel, and the way it fitted perfectly, the jacket unbuttoned, and her silver gray shirt. She said, my blood hurts. Your blood hurts? Yes. What can I say? I don't see why I have to go through everything again. The smile, whatever there'd been of it, was gone, and she looked tired. You don't have to. She closed her eyes and opened them slowly. I imagined her counting to ten. Simon said that. I nodded. She looked at her hands, slowly moving her fingers. He was good at saying nothing, too. But you spoke to him. She stared at me. Did you say Chris? She waited as if she wanted to see what I'd do. I felt my skin prickle. Yes, Chris. She was moving at a different pace from me. Chris, she said, with an Italian accent. Are you Italian? I told her I was English. Chris. She looked surprised and glanced towards the window. Chris. How funny. I could have sworn there's something foreign about you. What's going on with your name? 
My father was Polish. She stretched her arms in front of her, clasping them, letting go of her wrists, extending her fingers. I knew it. She relaxed, letting her arms fall. Can you get me out of here? She looked away before I could reply. No. How old are you? You look very young. Thirty, I said. I remembered, as I listened to the tape, how young I'd felt. Are you experienced? I was young, but she couldn't have been much older than me. I'd just finished my training, and I wasn't about to get into that. Simon was older and more confident with a reputation. He had no idea that I'd gone behind his back, gone to Pisa. He was on holiday, his job done, somewhere on the other side of the world. I said, I want to help you. She laughed. Simon didn't go that far, no? No, he gave me the impression I was beyond help. He thinks I killed Kate, didn't he? He thinks I killed John. I didn't reply. Silence, I thought. Silence was better. She waved her hand as if she was used to it and said, my solicitor told me that's what he thinks. She shrugged, closed her eyes, tapped her foot, and opened her eyes again, wide, inviting me to look into them. You're still here. Your solicitor asked me to speak to you. So? I asked him not to say anything to you before I saw you, because I didn't want you to know I was coming in case something got in the way. I hesitated. I don't think you killed anybody. She smiled. I don't know what happened, but I don't think you're a killer. She shrugged again. I'm not. She paused and glanced at me as if we were sharing a joke. What makes you think I'm not? I shifted. She raised her eyebrows enough to let me know she'd noticed. I don't know. She looked at the floor. You don't know. It felt as if she was slipping away. No, I don't. The space between us was unraveling, the tension slackening. Why not? I told her, your story sounds like a ghost story. More distance, as if the ground between us was going to open up. Nothing would cover it. Do you believe in ghosts, she asked. No. Neither do I, she said. Then why did it sound as if you were telling Simon a ghost story? It's how it happened. She went over to the window and looked down onto the police vehicles in the courtyard, their roof lights glittering in the sun. There was something in that look, a kind of intention, which I couldn't work out. Okay, thank you. Down to very short person mode. That was better. Uh, so that was the end of the second set. Stick with us. We've got three more writers for you, including Martin Miller. I'm very excited to hear from his new book. But before that, we're going to have a 10-minute break to get your drinks in, peruse the wonderful books at the bookshop, grab some more library flyers, and generally uh, you know, do all of that quickly. Go and have a slash whatever you need to do. Uh, and then uh, we'll be back to listen to the last three writers, who are Martin Miller, Joe Clayton, and Ian Bourne. See you shortly.